This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, February 23, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. The NSA and British intelligence teamed up to steal the keys to the SIM card that's very likely in your phone right now. It means that encryption that normally prevents snooping may have been compromised. Julian Sanchez, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, talks about the problems this kind of espionage has on markets, security, and the rule of law. So I think a lot of us had thought that the major revelations from the Edward Snowden archive uh, were basically done, but then a blockbuster story uh, at The Intercept uh, showed that there were a few surprises left. A major Dutch uh, company called Gemalto uh, that produces uh, uh, secure products like SIM cards for uh, hundreds of mobile carriers around the world was, according to uh, slides in there hacked in a joint operation by GCHQ, the government communication headquarters, that's sort of the British counterpart of NSA uh, and uh, NSA. And together they uh, essentially targeted. Uh, dozens of this uh, Dutch company's employees around the world uh, read their Facebook messages and emails to gather information and then used that information to hack into uh, Jamalto's networks in order to find a way to steal the encryption keys that would let them read uh, the uh, traffic between carriers and uh, and cell phones. So uh, Jamalto basically ships these SIM cards to companies like AT&T and Sprint and Verizon around the world, and these are uh, end up in phones. And this is supposed to be how uh, you prevent people from listening in on your calls. So it's, it's not like a, a walkie-talkie where anyone with an antenna can just uh, listen in on a conversation, uh, but rather the encryption keys uh, that are held inside the SIM card in your phone uh, with a counterpart held by the telephone carrier encrypt that traffic. So you can't just vacuum it up and listen to uh, all the cell phone conversations in your neighborhood. Uh, But of course, if you have those encryption keys, if you've stolen them, as apparently NSA and GCHQ did, uh, then uh, you are able to unlock those transmissions. Aside from just the basic privacy implications for people, this has not been uh, meaningless for Jamalto as a company. Their stock price declined by... uh, Somewhere between five and eight percent in a in a single day, and this is that's pretty significant. Sure. Uh, Jamalto recently did put out a uh, a release saying uh, they believe that their products are still secure, but of course, uh, if they were the target of a very sophisticated intrusion and theft of keys, uh, it's not not very clear that they could know that for certain. Uh, these these are uh, folks who are extremely good at not leaving any traces. But yeah, they've become the latest uh, company to suffer from disclosures that. Uh, their product might not be secure from eavesdropping. Uh, we know the router company Cisco had some similar issues uh, after it was reported that NSA had been intercepting their routers to implant them with spyware. Uh, and in general, American companies have been having a hard time trying to regain the trust of a global user base uh, with a sense that the American government has very easy access to data stored with those companies. I think, you know, there's a couple things that are disturbing about this. Uh, Obviously, the 
you know, in terms of individual privacy. But I think one one thing this highlights is that NSA itself admits they don't just listen to bad guys; they listen to interesting people. And so here we see a case where, um, in apparent violation of Dutch law, a law-abiding company and its law-abiding employees all uh, were essentially exploited and attacked uh, in the same way a, a you know a criminal hacker would attack them, and they had done nothing wrong. We we debate these intelligence activities as though we're just debating whether spies and terrorists should be exploited. But we know that in order to target the people they're interested in ultimately, often intelligence agencies uh, attack a lot of innocent people along the way. And so I think, you know, it's fair to say, hey, maybe uh, an allied country, uh, you know, uh, uh, companies in allied countries shouldn't have to worry about their systems being hacked and their intellectual property stolen, um, you know, because it's convenient for global intelligence agencies to attack someone else that way. I think, you know, know, perhaps this sounds quaint, um, but we are breaking the laws of other countries and violating uh, the privacy of citizens of other countries. It's also, I think, disturbing because uh, this is a method that bypasses one of the very few checks in the intelligence process. Uh, In general, when we do domestic surveillance, certainly, or surveillance in a a country we're allied with, the way it works is uh, you get a court order or whatever legal process is appropriate. Um, You go to the company like AT&T and say, these are the folks whose uh, cell phone calls we want information about. and so at least there's someone outside the government that's in that loop so that if someone decides to improperly target uh, a political adversary or if suddenly uh, you know, the number of people they're trying to eavesdrop on increases by a factor of 10, there's some lawyer outside the government who has at least in theory the capability to say, you know, I'm not sure about this. Maybe I'm going to push back on this legally. Um, that at least acts as some kind of restraint, some kind of uh, sense that, well, you know, you can't play too fast and loose without generating some kind of pushback. And that's why, uh, you know, we in general see um, companies being anxious when usually repressive governments demand direct access to their communication stream because it's uh, a way of architecting surveillance that doesn't have the same kind of built-in checks. Uh, the final thing I'd say, though, is that uh, you know we've been hearing a lot recently from the FBI and American law enforcement about uh, proposals to try and weaken encryption, to try and make sure that end-to-end encryption, where the keys are only held by the end users, um, is built with some kind of backdoor so that companies like Apple and Google uh, preserve some sort of secret special key that will let them unlock conversations uh, or communications or data when they've got a court order. And the th- point security professionals have been making uh, all along here is that that's a bad model because when when you force a company to create a centralized repository of keys, that repository itself becomes a very attractive target for sophisticated adversaries like intelligence agencies. And hey, case in point, the uh, NSA and GCHQ saw this repository and said, you know, if we break this one company's networks, now we have the ability to eavesdrop on all the many millions of conversations that they're providing the security for. Um, The way you provide security and deter uh, attacks like this is by not creating that attractive central repository. Now, uh, 
as you mentioned, that uh, NSA has taken steps to attempt to weaken encryption standards. They've stockpiled zero days. And just by virtue of the fact that uh, this allows them to operate more easily without warrants, without any type of authorization uh, whatsoever, um, and also damage uh, a company's reputation in the process, that seems to add yet another reason why NSA would uh, want to perhaps add penalties for the uh, broad publication of zero days as uh, some legislation proposes. Sure. I mean, this is a case where this is not quite uh they may have used zero day uh, exploit zero day as a uh, an undisclosed vulnerability um, in in software. So uh, the idea being uh, when the vulnerability is used, the company or, or security researchers have had zero days to deal with and patch that vulnerability. Uh, we don't know whether they use that in their attack. Um, but this is an undisclosed vulnerability of a different kind in, uh, in of course, the uh, chips that we're counting on to secure our, our communications. And this is, I think, another illustration of the tension between NSA's dual missions of information security and information uh, exploitation. Um, you might think, hey, NSA has proof positive now, because they've done it, uh, that the SIM cards that we are all counting on, or many of us are counting on to secure our communications, are vulnerable, because they were able to break in and steal keys. And so, of course, someone else might equally be able to do that. Maybe that's a sign that um, these SIMs should be recalled. Maybe it's a sign that we need to change the architecture in general of how we secure cell phone communications. Um, But... Of course, NSA didn't issue a warning to private companies saying, hey, um, this architecture isn't secure. Um, These keys could be stolen by us or by someone else. Uh, Why? Because, of course, they wanted to preserve their own capability. And this is a a generalizable problem. They they find out about security vulnerabilities all the time. In theory, they're supposed to go through a process of deciding when it's in the best interests of global security to disclose those vulnerabilities. But it seems as though more often than not, they decide it's better to keep everyone insecure so that they can eavesdrop when they need to, even if it leaves us all more vulnerable. Have leaders of the intelligence agencies made public statements about whether or not they support the idea of increasing penalties or making it more difficult for publication of security vulnerabilities? Well, so we've seen uh, a a recent proposal to strengthen the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act within the U.S. in a way that a lot of security researchers are extraordinarily nervous about. Uh, The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is already worded quite broadly so that uh, in many cases people have been prosecuted for things like violation of a website's terms of service on the theory that um, you you, you violate the fine print in the Facebook uh, agreement and that's unauthorized authorized access equivalent to hacking. Um, One of the proposals that's been floated recently is to uh, also create stiff penalties for uh, people who punish, uh, who publish um, security vulnerabilities that can later be used in a hack. And of course, security researchers are saying, well, wait a minute now. Uh, what we do f- sort of for a living is publish security vulnerabilities and alert people to them. Inevitably, um, not everyone immediately patches all those vulnerabilities. Um, 
are we going to be vulnerable now to legal punishment if we try and make the public aware of uh, a vulnerability that needs to be fixed and then someone misuses it? Um, I think that's uh, that's certainly a, a very bad idea, and I, I get the impression that perhaps they've been backing down from proposals like that. Julian Sanchez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Read more of his work at Cato.org.